Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Pivotal Voices podcast on my Substack. I'm Steve Goldstein. For more than half a year, I've been hosting and producing the AZ Politicast podcast, and I recently teamed up with Arizona Highways Magazine as co-host of their Reimagined podcast. This podcast is going to return me to my roots as a 25-year veteran of public radio. I'll be in conversation with people who are reaching great heights in the widest possible variety of fields. The word interesting is overused to the point of being a parody of itself, but I still like it. So you'll be hearing from interesting people in business, politics, sports, arts, and culture. These are innovative and creative leaders. The conversations will be intelligent, deep, and human, so that means we'll laugh sometimes, even about incredibly important things, because I don't think being dark or pessimistic is the way to reach common ground as people and have good conversations. I hope you like it, and I hope you'll share my interviews with friends and colleagues so I can do more and more of them. This inaugural edition of Pivotal Voices on my Substack features Shannon Scutari of Scutari & Company. Shannon has a long list of achievements in and out of government, but is probably best known for her efforts on making light rail a reality and economic development related to transit and light rail such a success. So we started our conversation about the work to extend the Prop 400 transportation sales tax and how vital it'll be for voters to approve Proposition 479 this November. Yes, in fact, having 20 plus years of working on the original uh, Prop 400, which was the first time that we actually had any sales tax funding at all, any regional funding um, uh, in a significant way for transit, for buses, for rail for the first time, really. And then also really what we now take for granted, which is a lot of our urban infrastructure, which is what we call micromobility, the opportunity for us to walk, bike, and also electric bikes and scooters and things like that that have come on board since we got that passed, um, you know, it was a 16 and a half, $17 billion package in 2004. And it was overwhelmingly passed by voters. They wanted a balanced system. They wanted something other than just, um, you know, a one trick pony, right? We were a one trick pony. We were cars, we were interchanges, we were master plan communities and they wanted more. So since that time, now we see the extension of, of this. And, and I would just say that um, I feel as though some of the challenges uh, in getting it passed through the legislature were really that we, a lot of these partners um, that had to be sold on a lot of these ideas, frankly, the Arizona Department of Transportation, you know, Valley Metro, they went from a very small operating organization to a I mean, thousand fold of operating, you know, a, a, a system. Um, when they were really more of a planning organization and doing very small amount of bus transit and no rail at all. Uh, so they exploded um, the cities and in, in their transportation and multimodal, as we say, choices exploding. I really feel like those partners have done such an awesome job at implementing that, frankly, um, people are taking for granted in a lot of ways that that's just going to always be that way. So in these conversations at the legislature, um, uh, conversations in communities, we had to really, really, really motivate people with this looming uh, growth that was going to dump on us and use a lot of the emotion that folks did not want to become LA. Um, that was top of the mind 25 years ago when we were working on these things. People are taking it for granted now. I mean, we have these amazing leaders that have done an excellent job implementing. And so now I think that's why people were feeling empowered to pick away 
at some of the transit pieces and bargain away some of those things that created a balanced infrastructure for this region uh, because we've taken it for granted. Economic development was a big part, I think, ultimately of of at least a lot of people who were not anti-rail to start with, who thought, all right, this could be an option to use. Just how much has economic development been a reality for areas? And I know the building process, the construction process, people were very stressed about that, for, I suppose, for good reason. But once things emerged, and now what the next steps may be, just how much has that meant to economic diversity and economic development here? It's explosive. I mean, we're, again, we're back to the one trick pony. We were, you know, construction starts and permits, and then the bottom fell out of that um, with the recession, um, you know, and, and the foreclosure crisis. I mean, we were the poster children for that with Las Vegas. And so it opened up a vacuum of opportunity for really the only areas uh, creating that revenue on the development side. You know, we were incredibly real estate um, heavy on our economy. Uh, really out of balance. Um, we needed more diversification, needed to draw in some of those, um, you know, entrepreneurial, innovative technology, trying to be a little mini Silicon Valley and those kinds of things. Well, they weren't going to come to us in the uninteresting fashion that we were, which was, you know, again, a, a suburban and exurban lifestyle where you're in the car all day long, getting anything you need. So a lot of the economic opportunities that have connected now are, you know, it's explosive. It's billions of dollars, really. And it's um, the only things really happening um, during the recession were um, that were providing revenue for cities or frankly for the state were happening in urban areas. And it was happening right at the time, luckily, again, to fill that, that void and that vacuum, luckily around when we needed to create mixed income uh, and mixed use and job centers and healthcare centers around the light rail. And so that to me is what we're really proud of is that if you, it's that if we build it, they will come. And I get, I know I'm not saying it's a panacea. We have challenges of ridership. We have issues at this point that we've seen that are kind of hanging on after COVID. However, if we didn't have that alternative, Steve, we wouldn't have been able to move in the area of diversifying our economy because we wouldn't have offered the things in the community space um, and the living space that, frankly, the millennials, Gen Zs, we knew, again, as the OGs, we knew that was going to happen. Um, but the folks that weren't going to see the long-term piece of it and they were fighting rail 20, 25 years ago or fighting more transit service, um, they just thought that the one trick pony was going to be the way to keep us alive economically. And I'm really glad that the voters saw the wisdom in moving in this direction. These are very different organizations I'm going to throw toward you, but there's been a lot of headlines. There have been a lot of headlines recently with the Commerce Authority, whether it's Commerce Authority, GPAC, even Local First Arizona. What sort of a difference does that make, even whether in tandem or parallel with some of the things that that expanded transportation options helped in diversifying the economy. What about having, whether it's recruiting groups or groups that just try to make this more of a livable place, um, yes. how much of a difference has that made for the past decade or so? Well, they wouldn't have anything really interesting to sell, would they? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all that, I mean, you know, we call these 20-year overnight success stories, you know, and I, you know, former Congressman Harry Mitchell, you know, when he was a mayor, uh, he used to use that in Tempe, you know, a real visionary way back. And 
And again, we wouldn't have anything to sell. I mean, it, it's very uninteresting. I mean, we have our sunshine, which again is a blessing and a curse, <laughs> depending on what time of the year you're here. Yeah. But we were very, very uninteresting. These things and the infrastructure ties, that's what really makes the diversification and the sustainability piece of it. And not just sustainability from an environment standpoint, from an economic standpoint. Um, and it pushed, it changed things. And I know how uncomfortable that is. Um, but it all that was really what helped us manage our growth. And we're really, really proud, again, we were on that path of becoming LA. I mean, who it was front and center when we were doing a lot of our surveys uh, 25 years ago, prior to you know even putting together the regional transportation plan for Prop 400. Folks were terrified of that. Even if they knew they weren't gonna ride the light rail, someone else would and they'd get off their freeways. Where do you see government's role in, because uh, you know, public-private partnerships have been a, a, a strong point in a lot of ways, and I'm, I'm sure there are good and bad examples of that. But, you know, people will complain about how government doesn't regulate enough, and then government regulates too much, and then we need to let the free market mm -hmm. decide. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the happy medium with all that? Mm -hmm. Well, first, I will say that public-private partnerships sound amazing, and they sound like a silver bullet. And if you don't have a, anybody on the outside of that that isn't tied financially to one entity or the other really nudging both of those partners towards you know I'm not going to say the ultimate c-word but the compromise the c-word when it comes to the public-private partnership side then you're never going to create a partnership with these entities that are so entrenched in protecting their institutions and their livelihood and their balance sheets and all of that um so the reason a lot of times public-private partnerships don't happen is because you don't have an accountability or you don't have that really nudging organization or um, community leverage that can pull those entities together towards a compromise and towards an outcome that is really bigger than each of those entities and something they can buy into outside of their own territorial interests. So I would say the government side of it, it's it it really is the most stable force. I mean, it truly is. Um, businesses that fight these things from the standpoint of saying we want government, um, you know, we want to slay the dragon, we want to slay the beast, we want to starve the beast. Um, it is the most reliable and sustainable force that um, of a partnership. Um, because of those long established, and I guess, you know, you can say fees and taxes, but, and, and processes really um, for providing stability in an agreement. So a lot of times a private entity will feel more confident coming in on a deal if they feel as though there's a private or there's a, there's a public contract that allows for their participation in that because there's stability in that governmental piece. So as much as the organizations, the bureaucracies can, can make sure that they are really challenging themselves, and this is the elected officials, but you know, it's also really the, the upper management as well, where they're challenging the organization to take some risks 
right? But create that, but still maintain that stability. That's the challenge because we'll have it every, everything the way it's always been. If there isn't some direction saying, we want you to try to find a way to make this different and better. And I've seen that happen with the leaders I've been able to work with. And I've been really honored that even though I was in government, I was empowered to really find those opportunities to partner with the private side so we could get the big projects done. Is there more or less pragmatism aimed for problem solving now than there there had been? And I kind of bring it up only because with this Commerce Authority thing, there were yeah. some people I spoke to who were who were surprised but delighted that Governor Hobbs was was very supportive of the Commerce Authority. And they said, well, this just like flips this on its head because now we're seeing more of the Democrats in the state being the ones who are being more pragmatic as opposed to those sort of few Republicans in the middle. Do you see less pragmatism and less problem solving or is that just getting more of the headlines? Well, it definitely gets the headlines. I mean, it, you know, it triggers us to respond and have an emotional reaction. And that's a lot of times what people will, it makes nice clickbait. Um, but I, I, I think there is more compromise. I really do. I really feel as though because there are more opportunities, there's more innovation in our system here in Arizona in particular, um, that the Commerce Authority and GPAC and some of these other organizations, um, uh, downtown Phoenix organizations that are working really well, some of the downtown Tempe organizations, Mesa is doing an incredible job with some of their organizations that aren't, you know, government-based. I believe though that compromise is happening and those partnerships are happening. And I think that that is what is frankly making some of the folks that don't want the change scared. I think what there's a lot of fear there. And that's why this reaction is so strong because it's in a world they're not necessarily understanding anymore and they can't necessarily control it. Well, so let me just ask you a big picture. What you are excited about next for what you're working on or what the community's working on? So there really has to be more ownership on the community side. There is no contractual role at this point in time on these large infrastructure projects and things for community-based organizations uh, like those that I've run with that are really collaborative. Um, and they're really, um, folks are recognizing that it's just not, it, it's gonna cost all these projects and initiatives, more money, more time. Nobody in these billion dollar projects wants, you know, a scope creep. They don't want, they don't want their budget to slip. They don't want their timeline to slip. So that front end work that's so necessary, um, it seems as though as we keep growing and hopefully keep diversifying our how we can offer these amazing things in Arizona that the more folks are are embracing that early ownership on the community side with those public private partnerships um that to me is applicable to anything not just infrastructure it's applicable to um entrepreneurial support that's necessary um but it's not top down 
and it, it, it's a combination of, of um, embracing an understanding of things that may at first scare people and make them um, want to go into kind of this box. And I'm seeing more and more people and organizations hire me in particular to help them navigate those things because they're getting so much backlash and it's costing their projects money and it's costing their projects time. And, and they're not sure how to navigate that in early enough in the process. Wow. Shannon Skatari is so insightful. Let's uh, get your website. I understand you have a new website and let's hear where people can find you on social media. Okay. Well, it's www.scutariandcompany.com and Scutari is S-C-U-T-A-R-I and then and company all spelled out. Um, and then I do have a Twitter handle and um, I'm on LinkedIn as well um, under Shannon Scutari or Scutari and Company LLC. Great to talk with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. 